Section 28 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sandra Estenson. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 18, Secondary Sexual Characters of Mammals, Continued, Part 2. In all the cases hitherto given, the male is more strongly or brighter colored than the female, and differs from the young of both sexes. But, as with some few birds, it is the female which is brighter colored than the male. So with the rhesus monkey, Macacus rhesus. The female has a large surface of naked skin round the tail, of a brilliant carmine red, which, as I was assured by the keepers in the zoological gardens, periodically becomes even yet more vivid, and her face is also a pale red. On the other hand, in the adult male, and in the young of both sexes, as I saw in the gardens, neither the naked skin at the posterior end of the body, nor the face, shew a trace of red. It appears, however, from some published accounts, that the male does occasionally, or during certain seasons, exhibit some traces of the red. Although he is thus less ornamented than the female, yet in the larger size of his body, larger canine teeth, more developed whiskers, more prominent superciliary ridges, he follows the common rule of the male excelling the female. I have now given all the cases known to me of a difference in color between the sexes of mammals. Some of these may be the result of variations confined to one sex and transmitted to the same sex, without any good being gained, and therefore without the aid of selection. We have instances of this with our domesticated animals, as in the males of certain cats being rusty red, whilst the females are tortoiseshell colored. Analogous cases occur in nature. Mr. Bartlett has seen many black varieties of the jaguar, leopard, vulpine phalanger, and wombat and he is certain that all or nearly all these animals were males. On the other hand, with wolves, foxes, and apparently American squirrels, both sexes are occasionally born black. Hence it is quite possible that with some mammals a difference in color between the sexes, especially when this is congenital, may simply be the result, without the aid of selection, of the occurrence of one or more variations, which, from the first, were sexually limited in their transmission. Nevertheless, it is improbable that the diversified, vivid, and contrasted colors of certain quadrupeds, for instance, of the above monkeys and antelopes, can thus be accounted for. We should bear in mind that these colors do not appear in the male at birth, 
but only at or near maturity, and that unlike ordinary variations, they are lost if the male be emasculated. It is on the whole probable that the strongly marked colors and other ornamental characters of male quadrupeds are beneficial to them in their rivalry with other males, and have consequently been acquired through sexual selection. This view is strengthened by the differences in color between the sexes occurring almost exclusively, as may be collected from the previous details, in those groups and subgroups of mammals which present other and strongly marked secondary sexual characters, these being likewise due to sexual selection. Quadrupeds manifestly take notice of color. Sir S. Baker repeatedly observed that the African elephant and rhinoceros attacked white or gray horses with special fury. I have elsewhere shown that half-wild horses apparently prefer to pair with those of the same color, and that herds of fallow deer of different colors, though living together, have long kept distinct. It is a more significant fact that a female zebra would not admit the addresses of a male ass until he was painted so as to resemble a zebra, and then, as John Hunter remarks, she received him very readily. In this curious fact, we have instinct excited by mere color, which had so strong an effect as to get the better of everything else. But the male did not require this. The female, being an animal somewhat similar to himself, was sufficient to rouse him. In an earlier chapter, we have seen that the mental powers of the higher animals do not differ in kind, though greatly in degree, from the corresponding powers of man, especially of the lower and barbarous races. And it would appear that even their taste for the beautiful is not wildly different from that of the quadrumana. As the negro of Africa raises the flesh on his face into parallel lines, or cicatrices, high above the natural surface, which unsightly deformities are considered great personal attractions. As negroes and savages in many parts of the world paint their faces with red, blue, white, or black bars, so the male mandrill of Africa appears to have acquired his deeply furrowed and gaudily colored face from having been thus rendered attractive to the female. No doubt it is to us a most grotesque notion that the posterior end of the body should be colored for the sake of ornament even more brilliantly than the face. But this is not more strange than that the tails of many birds should be especially decorated. With mammals, we do not at present possess any evidence that the males take pains to display their charms before the female, and the elaborate manner in which this is performed by male birds and other animals 
is the strongest argument in favour of the belief that the females admire or are excited by the ornaments and colours displayed before them. There is, however, a striking parallelism between mammals and birds in all their secondary sexual characters, namely in their weapons for fighting with rival males, in their ornamental appendages and their colours. In both classes, when the male differs from the female, the young of both sexes almost always resemble each other, and in a large majority of cases resemble the adult female. In both classes, the male assumes the characters proper to his sex shortly before the age of reproduction, and if emasculated at an early period, loses them. In both classes, the change of color is sometimes seasonal, and the tints of the naked parts sometimes become more vivid during the act of courtship. In both classes, the male is almost always more vividly or strongly colored than the female, and is ornamented with larger crests of hair or feathers or other such appendages. In a few exceptional cases, the female in both classes is more highly ornamented than the male. With many mammals, and at least in the case of one bird, the male is more odiferous than the female. In both classes, the voice of the male is more powerful than that of the female. Considering this parallelism, there can be little doubt that the same cause, whatever it may be, has acted on mammals and birds, and the result, as far as ornamental characters are concerned, may be attributed, as it appears to me, to the long-continued preference of the individuals of one sex for certain individuals of the opposite sex, combined with their success in leaving a larger number of offspring to inherit their superior attractions. Equal transmission of ornamental characters to both sexes. With many birds, ornaments, which analogy leads us to believe were primarily acquired by the males, have been transmitted equally, or almost equally, to both sexes, and we may now inquire how far this view applies to mammals. With a considerable number of species, especially the smaller kinds, both sexes have been colored, independently of sexual selection, for the sake of protection, but not, as far as I can judge, in so many cases, nor in so striking a manner, as in most of the lower classes. Audubon remarks that he often mistook the muskrat, Fiberizabethicus, whilst sitting on the banks of a muddy stream for a clod of earth, so complete was the resemblance. The hair on her form is a familiar instance of concealment through color. Yet this principle partly fails in a closely allied species. The rabbit, for when running to its burrow, is made conspicuous to the sportsman, and no doubt at all beasts of prey, by its upturned white tail. 
no one doubts that the quadrupeds inhabiting snow-clad regions have been rendered white to protect them from their enemies or to favor their stealing on their prey in regions where snow never lies for long a white coat would be injurious consequently species of this color are extremely rare in the hotter parts of the world it deserves notice that many quadrupeds inhabiting moderately cold regions although they do not assume a white winter dress become paler during this season and apparently it is the direct result of the conditions to which they have long been exposed pallas states that in siberia a change of this nature occurs with the wolf two species of mustella and the domestic horse the equus hemianus the domestic cow two species of antelopes the musk deer the roe elk and reindeer the roe for instance has a red summer and a grayish white winter coat and the latter may perhaps serve as a protection to the animal whilst wandering through the leafless thickets sprinkled with snow and hoar-frost if the above-named animals were gradually to extend their range into regions perpetually covered with snow their pale winter coats would probably be rendered through natural selection whiter and whiter until they became as white as snow mr reeks has given me a curious instance of an animal profiting by being particularly colored he raised from fifty to sixty white and brown piebald rabbits in a large walled orchard and he had at the same time some similarly colored cats in his house such cats as i have often noticed are very conspicuous during day but as they used to lie and watch during the dusk at the mouths of the burrows the rabbits apparently did not distinguish them from their party-colored brethren the result was that within eighteen months every one of those party-colored rabbits was destroyed and there was evidence that this was affected by the cats color seems to be advantageous to another animal the skunk in a manner of which we have had many instances in other classes no animal will voluntarily attack one of these creatures on account of the dreadful odor which it emits when irritated but during the dusk it would not easily be recognized and might be attacked by a beast of prey hence it is as mr belt believes that the skunk is provided with a great white bushy tail which serves as a conspicuous warning although we must admit that many quadrupeds have received their present tints either as a protection or as an aid in procuring prey yet with a host of species the colors are far too conspicuous and too singularly arranged to allow us to suppose that they serve for these purposes we may take as an illustration certain antelopes when we see the square white patch on the throat the white marks on the fetlocks and the round black spots on the ears all more distinct in the male of the portax picta 
than in the female, when we see that the colours are more vivid, that the narrow white lines on the flank and the broad white bar on the shoulder are more distinct in the male, aureus derbanus, than the female, when we see a similar difference between the sexes of the curiously ornamented Tregalophus scriptus, we cannot believe that differences of this kind are of any service to either sex in their daily habits of life. It seems a much more probable conclusion that the various marks were first acquired by the males and their colors intensified through sexual selection, and then partially transferred to the females. If this view be admitted, there can be little doubt that the equally singular colors and marks of many other antelopes, though common to both sexes, have been gained and transmitted in a like manner. Both sexes, for instance, of the kudu, Strepsiceros kudu, have narrow white vertical lines on their hind flanks, and an elegant angular white mark on their foreheads. Both sexes in the genus Damalis are very oddly colored. In D. pygarga, the back and neck are purplish red, shading on the flanks into black, and these colors are abruptly separated from the white belly and from a large white space on the buttocks. The head is still more oddly colored. A large oblong white mask, narrowly edged with black, covers the face up to the eyes. There are three white stripes on the forehead, and the ears are marked with white. The fawns of this species are of a uniform pale yellowish-brown. In Demolius albifrons, the coloring of the head differs from that in the last species in a single white stripe replacing the three stripes, and the ears being almost wholly white. After having studied to the best of my ability the sexual differences of animals belonging to all classes, I cannot avoid the conclusion that the curiously arranged colors of many antelopes, though common to both sexes, are the result of sexual selection primarily applied to the male. The same conclusion may perhaps be extended to the tiger, one of the most beautiful animals in the world the sexes of which cannot be distinguished by color, even by the dealers in wild beasts. Mr. Wallace believes that the striped coat of the tiger so assimilates with the vertical stems of the bamboo as to assist greatly in concealing him from his approaching prey. But this view does not appear to me satisfactory. We have some slight evidence that this beauty may be due to sexual selection, for in two species of Felis the analogous marks and colors are rather brighter in the male than in the female. The zebra is conspicuously striped, and stripes cannot afford any protection in the open plains of South Africa. Burchell, in describing a herd, says, their sleek ribs glistened in the sun, and the brightness and regularity of their striped coats presented a picture of extraordinary beauty, in which probably they are not surpassed by any other quadruped. But as throughout the whole group of the Equidae, the sexes are identical in color, we have here no evidence of sexual selection. 
Nevertheless, he who attributes the white and dark vertical stripes on the flanks of various antelopes to this process will probably extend the same view to the royal tiger and the beautiful zebra. We have seen in a former chapter that when young animals belonging to any class follow nearly the same habits of life as their parents, and yet are colored in a different manner, it may be inferred that they have retained the coloring of some ancient and extinct progenitor. In the family of pigs and in the tapirs, the young are marked with longitudinal stripes, and thus differ from all the existing adult species in these two groups. With many kinds of deer, the young are marked with the elegant white spots of which their parents exhibit not a trace. A graduated series can be followed from the axis deer, both sexes, of which at all ages and during all seasons, are beautifully spotted, the male being rather more strongly colored than the female, to species in which neither the old nor the young are spotted. I will specify some of the steps in this series. The Manchurian deer, Cervus mantichurius, is spotted during the whole year, but, as I have seen in the zoological gardens, the spots are much paler during the summer, when the general color of the coat is lighter than during the winter, when the general color is darker, and the horns are fully developed. In the hog deer, Hylaphus porcinus, the spots are extremely conspicuous during the summer, when the coat is reddish-brown, but quite disappear during the winter when the coat is brown. Of the hog deer of Ceylon, says it's more brightly spotted with white than the common hog deer at the season when it renews its horns. In both these species the young are spotted. In the Virginian deer the young are likewise spotted, and about five percent of the adult animals living in Judge Carton's park as I am informed by him, temporarily exhibit the period when the red summer coat is being replaced by the bluish winter coat, a row of spots on each flank, which are always the same in number, though very variable in distinctness. From this condition there is but a very small step to the complete absence of spots in the adults at all seasons and lastly to their absence at all ages and seasons, as occurs with certain species. From the existence of this perfect series, and more especially from the fawns of so many species being spotted, we may conclude that the now living members of the deer family are the descendants of some ancient species which, like the axis deer, was spotted at all ages and seasons. A still more ancient progenitor, probably somewhere, resembled the Hyamotius aquaticus, for this animal is spotted, and the hornless males have long exerted canine teeth, of which some few true deer still retain rudiments. Hyamotius also offers one of those interesting cases of a form linking together two groups for it is intermediate in certain osteological characters between the pachyderms 
and ruminants, which were formerly thought to be quite distinct. A curious difficulty here arises. If we admit that colored spots and stripes were first acquired as ornaments, how comes it that so many existing deer, the descendants of an aboriginally spotted animal, and all the species of pigs and tapirs, the descendants of an aboriginally striped animal, have lost in their adult state their former ornaments? I cannot satisfactorily answer this question. We may feel almost sure that the spots and stripes disappeared at or near maturity in the progenitors of our existing species, so that they were still retained by the young, and, owing to the law of inheritance, at corresponding ages, were transmitted to the young of all succeeding generations. It may have been a great advantage to the lion and puma, from the open nature of their usual haunts, to have lost their stripes, and to have been thus rendered less conspicuous to their prey. And if the successive variations by which this end was gained occurred rather late in life, the young would have retained their stripes, as is now the case. As to deer, pigs, and tapirs, Fritz Muller has suggested to me that these animals, by the removal of their spots or stripes through natural selection, would have been less easily seen by their enemies, and that they would have especially required this protection as soon as the carnivora increased in size and number during the tertiary periods. This may be the true explanation, but it is rather strange that the young should not have been thus protected, and still more so that the adults of some species should have retained spots, either partially or completely, during part of the year. We know that when the domestic ass varies and becomes reddish-brown, gray, or black, the stripes on the shoulders and even on the spine frequently disappear, though we cannot explain the cause. Very few horses, except dun-colored kinds, have stripes on any part of their bodies, yet we have good reason to believe that the aboriginal horse was striped on the legs and spine, and probably on the shoulders. Hence the disappearance of the spots and stripes in our adult existing deer, pigs, and tapirs may be due to a change in the general color of their coats, but whether this change was effected through sexual or natural selection, or was due to the direct action of the conditions of life, or to some other unknown cause, it is impossible to decide. And observation made by Mr. Scaltier well illustrates our ignorance of the laws which regulate the appearance and disappearance of stripes. The species of Asinus, which inhabit the Asiatic continent, are destitute of stripes, not having even the cross-shoulder stripe, whilst those which inhabit Africa are conspicuously striped, with the partial exception of A. teniapus, which has only the cross-shoulder stripe and generally some faint bars on the legs, and this species inhabits the almost intermediate region of Upper Egypt and Abyssinia. Quadrumana Before we conclude, it will be well to add a few remarks on the ornaments of monkeys, 
In most of the species, the sexes resemble each other in color, but in some, as we have seen, the males differ from the females, especially in the color of the naked parts of the skin, in the development of the beard, whiskers, and mane. Many species are colored either in so extraordinary or so beautiful a manner, and are furnished with such curious and elegant crests of hair, that we can hardly avoid looking at these characters as having been gained for the sake of ornament. The accompanying figures serve to show the arrangement of the hair on the face and head in several species. It is scarcely conceivable that these crests of hair and the strongly contrasted colors of the fur and skin can be the result of mere variability without the aid of selection and it is inconceivable that they can be of use in any ordinary way to these animals. If so, they have probably been gained through sexual selection, though transmitted equally or almost equally to both sexes. With many of the quadrumana, we have additional evidence that the action of sexual selection in the greater size and strength of the males, and in the greater development of their canine teeth, in comparison to the females. A few instances will suffice of the strange manner in which both sexes of some species are colored, and of the beauty of others. The face of the Cercopithecus petrista is black, the whiskers and beard being white, with a defined, round, white spot on the nose, covered with short white hair, which gives to the animal an almost ludicrous aspect. The Semenopithecus frontatus, likewise, has a blackish face with a long black beard and a large naked spot on the forehead of a bluish-white color. The face of the Macacus lasoidus is a dirty, flesh-colored, with a defined red spot on each cheek. The appearance of Cercocobus athiops is grotesque, with its black face, white whiskers, and collar, chestnut head, and a large naked white spot over each eyelid. In very many species, the beard, whiskers, and crests of hair round the face are different color from the rest of the head, and when different, are always of a lighter tint often being pure white, sometimes bright yellow or reddish. The whole face of the southern American Brachiurus calvus is of a glowing scarlet hue, but this color does not appear until the animal is nearly mature. The naked skin of the face differs wonderfully in color in the various species. It is often brown or flesh-colored, with parts perfectly white, and often as black as that of the most sooty negro. In the Brachiaris, the scarlet tint is brighter than that of the most blushing Caucasian damsel. It is sometimes more distinctly orange than in any Mongolian, and in several species it is blue, passing into violet or gray. In all the species known to Mr. Bartlett, in which the animals of both sexes have strongly colored faces, the colors are dull or absent during early youth.
This likewise holds good with the mandrel and rhesus, in which the face and the posterior parts of the body are brilliantly colored in one sex alone. In these latter cases we have reason to believe that the colors were acquired through sexual selection, and we are naturally led to extend the same view to the foregoing species, though both sexes, when adult, have their faces colored in the same manner. Although many kinds of monkeys are far from beautiful according to our taste, other species are universally admired for their elegant appearance and bright colors. The Semenopithecus nemeos, though peculiarly colored, is described as extremely pretty. The orange-tinted face is surrounded by long whiskers of glossy whiteness with a line of chestnut red over the eyebrows. The fur on the back is of delicate gray with a square patch on the loins, the tail and the forearms being of a pure white. A gorget of chestnut surmounts the chest. The thighs are black, with the legs chestnut red. I will mention only two other monkeys for their beauty, and I have selected these as presenting slight sexual differences in color, which renders it in some degree probable that both sexes owe their elegant appearance to sexual selection. In the mustache monkey, Circopithecus cephus, the general color of the fur is mottled greenish, with the throat white. In the male, the end of the tail is chestnut, but the face is the most ornamented part, the skin being chiefly bluish-gray, shading into a blackish tint beneath the eyes, with the upper lip of a delicate blue, clothed on the lower edge with a thin black mustache. The whiskers are orange-colored, with the upper part black, forming a band which extends backwards to the ears, the latter being clothed with whitish hairs. In the Zoological Society's gardens, I have often overheard visitors admiring the beauty of another monkey, deservedly called Cercopithecus diana. The general color of the fur is gray, the chest and inner surfaces of the forelegs are white. A large triangular defined space on the hinder part of the back is rich chestnut. In the male, the inner sides of the thighs and abdomen are delicate fawn-colored, and the top of the head is black. The face and ears are intensely black, contrasting finely with a white transverse crest over the eyebrows, and a long white peaked beard, of which the basal portion is black. I have seen most of the above monkeys in the Zoological Society's gardens. In these and many other monkeys, the beauty and singular arrangement of their colors, and still more the diversified and elegant arrangements of the crests and tufts of hair on their heads, force the conviction of my mind that these characters have been acquired through sexual selection exclusively as ornaments. Summary The law of battle for the possession of the female appears to prevail throughout the whole class of mammals. Most naturalists will admit that the greater size, strength, 
courage and pugnacity of the male, his special weapons of offense, as well as his special means of defense, have been acquired or modified through that form of selection which I have called sexual. This does not depend on any superiority in the general struggle for life, but on certain individuals of one sex, generally the male, being successful in conquering other males, and leaving a large number of offspring to inherit their superiority, than do the less successful males. There is another and more peaceful kind of contest in which the males endeavor to excite or allure the females by various charms. This is probably carried on in some cases by the powerful odors emitted by the males during the breeding season, the odiferous glands having been acquired through sexual selection. Whether the same view can be extended to the voice is doubtful, for the vocal organs of the males must have been strengthened by use during maturity under the powerful excitements of love, jealousy, or rage, and will consequently have been transmitted to same sex. Various crests, tufts, and mantles of hair, which are either confined to the male or are more developed in this sex than in the female, seem in most cases to be merely ornamental, though they sometimes serve as a defense against rival males. There's even reason to suspect that the branching horns of stags and the elegant horns of certain antelopes, though probably serving as weapons of offense or defense, have been partly modified for ornament. When the male differs in color from the female, he generally exhibits darker and more strongly contrasted tints. We do not, in this class, meet with the splendid red, blue, yellow, and green tints so common with male birds and many other animals. The naked parts, however, of certain quadrumena must be excepted, for such parts, often oddly situated, are brilliantly colored in some species. The colors of the male in other cases may be due to simple variation without the aid of selection. But when the colors are diversified and strongly pronounced, when they are not developed until near maturity, and when they are lost after emasculation, we can hardly avoid the conclusion that they have been acquired through sexual selection for the sake of ornament, and have been transmitted exclusively or almost exclusively to the same sex. When both sexes are colored in the same manner, and the colors are conspicuous or curiously arranged, without being of the least apparent use as protection, and especially when they are associated with various other ornamental appendages, we are led by analogy to the same conclusion, namely, that they have been acquired through sexual selection, although transmitted to both sexes. That conspicuous and diversified colors, whether confined to the males or common to both sexes, are as a general rule associated in the same groups and subgroups with other secondary sexual characters, serving for war or for ornament, will be found to hold good 
if we look back to the various cases given in this and the last chapter. The law of equal transmission of characters to both sexes, as far as color and other ornaments are concerned, has prevailed far more extensively with mammals than with birds. But weapons, such as horns and tusks, have often been transmitted either exclusively or much more perfectly to the males than to the females. This is surprising, for as the males generally use their weapons for defense against enemies of all kinds, their weapons would have been of service to the females. As far as we can see, their absence in this sex can be accounted for only by the form of inheritance which has prevailed. Finally, with quadrupeds, the contest between the individuals of the same sex, whether peaceful or bloody, has, with the rarest exceptions, been confined to the males, so that the latter have been modified through sexual selection, far more commonly than the females, either for fighting with each other or for alluring the opposite sex. End of section 28 End of the Descent of Man by Charles Darwin, Part 2